Hi, I'm David Benedetto, and you are listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH Reading Radio. Today, I'm happy to be joined by sociologist and author Arlie Russell Hochschild to talk about her latest book, which is set here in Louisiana's Calcasieu Parish. The name of the book is Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. So uh, to kind of start us off, Arlie, I was really interested in uh, an interview you gave uh, for Vox.com in which you describe yourself as a social psychologist. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that means. Well, it really means that I think all of us human beings um, have uh, feelings, and the feelings have origins, and that we, uh, to really understand one another, we have to step in the shoes of another person. We have to understand what their experiences have been. And that um, recently, um, you know, there's been an enormous political split in our country. It's ever more troubling. People are kind of shouting at each other. And what I really think we need to do on both sides is try and um, cross what I call an empathy wall. So uh, Strangers in Their Own Land was my effort to get out of my political bubble in Berkeley, California, take my moral and political alarm system off and permit myself, as a social psychologist, really a, um, a lot of curiosity about the experiences of others. I had a wonderful time doing it. I met some fabulous people. And um, the book is, is a story of that journey. I can definitely see that. Um, tell me, what was the initial thought for this? Like, how did this book begin? How did that, what were the kind of roots of it? Yes. Well, you know, I was sitting in my office at the university and thinking over um, a lot of things that I thought would be good for this country that have to do with working families. And quite a few of my books have focused on issues of what happens when women go out to full-time jobs. I mean, how do we keep um, family life, family life? And I've wanted to see um, state-of-the-art child care centers and child care, you know, in in all its various forms. Uh, And we have really uh, not a good record nationwide for that. So I've I've wanted to see uh, flexible jobs, you know, with telecommuting, and we haven't really had an incentive set to get that up. Um, I've wanted to see parental leave for new and adoptive parents. And I just sat in my office five years and go, none of this is going to happen. Uh, Congress is at a standstill, logger hill, logger heads, and uh, a lot on the right don't believe in good government, don't think these things should be done. And this is, voice is getting stronger and stronger. And I thought, you know what? There are good people on the other side. And there's something I don't understand here. Um, so that was my moment. Like, let's let's take a little bit to uh, see how the other half lives, for, for lack of a yes. better term. Oh, yes, it was a great that. experience. Yeah, and... I'm still in touch. Just three weeks ago, I got back from Louisiana. Again, I can't seem to leave. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're happy to have you here always. I know that. Um, Or at least some people are, I'm sure, the people that you've met, um, which I'm really kind of interested in. When you first arrived, how did people respond to you? Well, you know, at first I thought people would think I was a monster, you know. Uh, And um, 
And I always told people, look, I'm a retired teacher, you know, UC Berkeley, uh, live in a bubble. I'm worried about the divide. I think we all live in bubbles. And could you, could you help me understand, you know, your perspective? And people were absolutely wonderful. People would say, you know, we're the flyover state. People don't really understand where we're coming from. And they look down on us on the number of grounds uh, as a poorer state and uh, having worse education and stuff. And you come, you, you tell them, you tell them about us. You know, you set the, everybody thinks we're racist. You know, come set the record straight. Uh, so I was greeted and helped. I, I had one contact in Calcasieu Parish, and I began with that. And this was the mother-in-law of a graduate student of mine hmm. at Berkeley, very interested in the environment. And uh, so actually... One Sunday, he and his wife and new son were coming for a visit, and we had, you know, tea and cookies and stuff. And and um, I told them both, yes, well, what's your next project? I said, well, you know, I'm really concerned about this big divide, uh, and uh, I don't, I just don't know how to understand the the other side, and you know, what kind of common ground we can can make here. Mind. And uh, my student's daughter said, um, Elise Capel said, oh, you ought to come and visit my mother. Now, this mother is a progressive artist, but her best friend uh, is um, ardent Tea Party and Trump supporter. And they're best friends. They have keys to each other's houses. They, their kids love each other. They were both sorority um, members at LSU. They love culture. They go to concerts together. I thought, oh, how fabulous. What a model for the whole country here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to find out more. And the very open-hearted, wonderful Sally Capel um, really helped me set up focus groups some uh, too liberal, too uh, conservative, and I kind of began there. Mm-hmm. And then started atten- as a guest of one of the people I got to know, uh, became uh, attended to Republican Women of Southwest Louisiana, and they were very open and wonderful. I mean, really generous, generous-hearted people. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. It's interesting that that kind of uh, that really kind of happenstance um, uh, meeting with your student led to all of this and all these meetings with these people. Um, and one of the things I really appreciate about your book uh, is the idea that uh, the reasons behind people holding certain opinions on things, including government, including the environment, are that there's no simple story behind that, and that if you try to bring one into it, you're just making a caricature. Uh, could you talk about the process of writing and interviewing people and bringing out these like multifaceted opinions and making sure you didn't make a caricature of anyone? Yes. Well, thank you for the question. Um, I, I, I guess I thought uh, like I was being given a gift uh, to, to get to know uh, people. And I'll give you an example of one man, his name uh, is Mike Schaff. He opens the book. He was a resident at the time of Bayou Corn that became Bayou Corn Sinkhole. Mm-hmm. And um, he's uh, 
Tea Party extremely uh, conservative, and I uh, thought, uh, here, here's a guy who, who lost his whole community, his home, to uh, a terrible industrial accident, uh, uh, and uh, Texas Brine's company was drilling and, uh, and really ruined the whole area almost forever. Who knows? And uh, I, but Mike didn't believe in in the possibility of stricter regulation that would have prevented such an accident. At least I thought that at first. So I thought, let me see if I can really um, understand this. And I asked him, "Can I see where you were born? Could we make that visit? Could could I see the school you went to? And you know, what row did you sit in?" And uh, where did you go to church, and where did you sit in church, and what did that mean for you? Can we visit uh, the graveyard where your parents are buried? And he showed me all of these places. In the course of things, I began to try and see what, what his boyhood was like and the meaning of community for him, for example, and uh, that he, he felt the government supplanted community. Um, and and we had a, a long conversation about regulating polluters because, it, to me, it was the absence of government that had caused this disaster. It was because the state of Louisiana didn't really uh, uh, sufficiently regulate uh, drillers, and he agreed with that. And so that began a conversation, actually, which is ongoing. And just uh, uh, three weeks ago, um, my son and I uh, paid another visit to him. We stayed with him uh, for uh, a day and a half. And I, my son is, um, I should say, a, a progressive in California and a uh, member of the Energy Commission that's responsible for renewable energy. It's very excited about the California model, and it's headed. We're headed uh, by 2030 to be 50 percent reliable on renewable energy, wow. and uh, the proportion of per capita energy used is going down uh, in California while it's going up in the rest of of the United States. Anyway, that's my son. I thought, oh, <laughs> these two people have met each other. They like each other. I'm just going to, let's go back. I'm just going to hold the tape recorder. Can you guys come to some common ground on how to prevent another Bayou corn sinkhole from happening anywhere in the country? So we had a good time. We went fishing to and talked that over. There was common ground. I found that so interesting. And uh, going back to what you said about being a social psychologist and getting the sense of how people feel in a situation, uh, a lot of the times we really miss that. And a lot of the country likes to pretend that everyone else is a logical actor. And when they have an opinion of something that doesn't sit with the other side, they're automatically stupid. Right. Um, right. I, I love the way that you kind of bring out people's sense of the reality in this. Yes, and the complexity and the ambivalence um, that each side can have when they're really um, speaking uh, honestly and feel safe to do so. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of goes into my next question, uh, which is you spend a lot of time in the book 
uh, not a lot of the time, but kind of an underlying current is this idea of the deep story. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about that. Right. Um, I came to feel that underlying everyone's um, moral commitments and uh, political choices is something uh, that I came to think of it as a deep story. So uh, the right has its and the left has its. We all have a deep story. What is a deep story? A deep story is, is a situation as it feels. So you take um, facts out of the deep story. You take um, moral beliefs out of the deep story. It's just how things feel. And the deep story for the right that I found, and, and I, I put it out there, and then I went back to people that I'd interviewed and said, is this, is this, is this how it feels? Is this, does this ring true for you? Or what would you change about it to make it the story that feels true for you? So that's how I did it. Anyway, the deep story is you're waiting in line um, as in a pilgrimage, facing up a hill, the top of which is the American dream. And uh, the, the feeling is that you're, you're, your feet are tired. You feel a great sense of deserving for that American dream. You're part of the way there. Um, but this line hasn't been moving. I've talked to people who hadn't had a, a raise in two decades, you know, and they worked hard, obeying the rules, and wanted to move forward. Didn't have malice toward any particular group, just wanted to get to the American dream. And this line was not moving. Then, a second moment in the right uh, deep story is that they're line cutters. Well, who are they? Well, they're blacks who now have access, have been given through a federal affirmative action program, access to jobs that used to be reserved for whites. And in this view, also women, like myself, who are by a federal mandate given uh, affirmative action, uh, are now given access to jobs that used to be reserved entirely for men. And then there are immigrants and refugees and even, in a way, the oil-soaked brown pelican, Louisiana's state bird, seems to be stepping in line. Many people said, oh, those those liberal environmentalists, they put animals ahead of people. (laughs) So uh, it looked like a lot of line cutters. And then another moment in in the right-wing deep story, Barack Obama who should be supervising the line impartially, seems to be waving at the line cutters. He's sponsoring them. The federal government seems like it is an instrument for the, the interests of the line cutters and has forgotten others in line. And uh, then people said, well, in fact, isn't he a line cutter too? How did his single mother you know, afford uh, Harvard education. These are expensive things. My parents couldn't. And something fishy was the was the thought. I mean, they didn't think about the scholarship programs in elite schools that do make this possible. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it looked like a collusion. And then um, a final moment 
in the deep story. Someone ahead of you in line, maybe they, they're more educated and coastal and cosmopolitan than you, and they look back and they say, oh, you know, this racist, uh, undereducated redneck, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then something snaps, you know. The, 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 that's the final denigration that says, ma'am, I am a stranger in my own land. I am not respected. I'm the person who has worked this hard and have been waiting, rule-abiding, uh, something wrong here. I need another line. I need uh, another, I need a sponsor who will, who will speak up for me. And such people did not see in the Democratic Party um, something that spoke to them and said, look, uh, uh, I recognize you and we're going to advance you toward your goal. And this is a fair and impartial uh, government. So I think that's the um, that's the uh, the right deep story. I went back to people. There's another character uh, that I uh, uh, write about, extraordinary guy, um, uh, a pipe fitter for PP&G, uh, who said, oh, I live your deep story. Or you read my mind. So... So I got a feeling, uh, others would say, well, wait a minute, you've left something out of the deep story. The people waiting in line <laughs> are paying taxes for, mm-hmm. the, for the line cutters. So, you know, they would modify it. And then I added that <clears throat> in to uh, what I wrote about that. Well, very... It was a way of trying to capture how things feel. Yeah, no, I think that that's fascinating because uh, in, as, as I personally look at history and how things come about in major events, uh, you find less and less the facts mattering less and less, and it's those deep stories of what the people are feeling in this moment, regardless of morals or what is considered right or what is a fact, that influence a lot of things happening in our culture. Right. Um, that's interesting. Um, there are facts, and I, I do have an appendix. Yes. You know, <laughs> a lot of people said, oh, so many jobs are government jobs these days, you know. <laughs> And the federal government is just enormous. Uh, and, you know, I, I truly didn't know what what the facts were, so I went home and looked it up. Well, it's 1.9% of uh, the American workforce uh, works for the federal government. And then if you add in state employees, including, uh, you know, teachers in public schools, and then most of all, if you add in uh the uh, county employees and the active military, I think, comes to 16 or 17 percent altogether. The rest is pro- are private sector jobs. Um, so uh, I learned something in that fact check, too. But <laughs> people's facts can, in a way, be assembled around their deep story on both sides. It's true. It's a, you, you move it to fit the narrative, right? Uh, you see a lot of that nowadays. Um which kind of leads me to to my next topic. Um, in the middle of this experiment and meeting all these people, uh, Donald Trump comes onto the scene. Right. Um, and in your interview with Vox, uh, the one that I had read, uh, you, you spoke in that one about the people you talked to not being the diehard uh, Trump fans you'd see at the rallies, uh, but more of the opinion that uh, we didn't come for him, but Donald, Donald Trump came to us, uh, which I think is interesting. Right, right. Uh, that's right. A lot of people, 
had um, reservations about his character. Um, I I talked to one uh, woman to whom I dedicated this book, she and her husband, and um, she voted for him, but she said, uh, I couldn't believe it when he imitated a disabled man and uh, laughed you know, and really invited uh, humility and denigration and how it's kind of denigrated a lot of people. She didn't, she didn't, that's not who she was. She's a um, very devout uh, person and this was not her code. And she also said, you know, he doesn't have a stable personality. He acts before he thinks and uh, I don't want to get more. Mm-hmm. So these were very serious uh, reservations, but still she voted uh, for him. It was, uh, I think she was a person who was, would be a single-issue voter. Um, and, and that was on uh, abortion, the right to abortion, which she uh, felt strongly opposed to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, there were a lot of different people and when I took my son down to have this conversation with Mike Schaff, uh, uh, my son asked him, well, do you have any um, any concerns about uh, Donald Trump? And Mike Schaff, who was enthusiastic for him, said, where do I begin? <laughs> but you know, if we get to a place of respect and trust, such a complex set of feelings can come by, can, can come forward on each side. And you can have really good conversations, even though um, the sides uh, have fundamental differences. Yeah. I myself am um, deeply concerned about uh, retaining democracy itself, a whole system of checks and balances an independent judiciary, an independent and free um, uh, uh, media, mm-hmm. no uh, press. And when Donald Trump locks out the New York Times, you know, for daily briefings and calls judges so-called judges, I am deeply disturbed by this because that feels very American to me, our checks and balances, our democracy. And on that, I think there's a lot of crossover to the people I talk to. Other people who voted for Trump are also uh, concerned on this, mm-hmm. on these grounds. No, definitely. You're, you're exactly right there. Um, you know, I, I find that that very interesting, and and you're also not saying oh, why can't we all get along. It's it's just the act that the conversation needs to be happening. And uh, in the past decades, it has not been. You know what I would love to see. I would love to see in all the schools, public and private, around the country, that every junior or senior in high school be. Uh, invited by a family that lives in a different region so that uh, coastal kids would spend two weeks with families inland. Inland families, say farming families, would get invited uh, by coastal families to spend two weeks. You'd have southern 
students uh, going north. You'd have northern students going south. And people would really learn what it is to sit around the dinner table and get to know a family, you know, a good family mm-hmm. uh, that has a different regional culture. It would be fabulous. And, you know, very often there are study abroad programs to go to Italy or France and so on. Well, let's start getting to know each other Americans, one to the other, because we have grown into geographic uh, enclaves or bubbles and technological bubbles. So you look at your computer screen and you're kind of surrounded with your own self. uh, And if you look at all the links that come up and their media bubbles, we're not even reading the same newspapers or seeing the same television programs. So we need to do something. If our leaders are going to tear us apart, how about having a people-to-people movement to pull ourselves together again? Heal this rift. I like it. I like it. I I would go for that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So we need some we need some educational authorities to get this get this going. (laughs) Yeah, I'm all about it then. Well, um, our time is a little bit short, but uh, before we go, I did want to um, ask uh, a couple more questions. Uh, one, uh, how did the people you wrote about respond to your book? And and two, um, a lot of people, along with Nancy Eisenberg's White Trash and J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, uh, kind of lumped your three books together as like an explanation of, of white middle class America and during the election and right after. And I was wondering how you felt about that and if you were comfortable with that. Well, each of us is very uh, different. And and to tell you the truth, I have not yet read White Trash. I have read Vance, um, Hillbilly Elegy, which I liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But I feel like what I did was a very different thing. Um they all have different lenses, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but um, mine was was a was that you might say an emotional journey. Oh, I can I can see that. And what about the um, the people that you wrote about? How did they react to the book? You know, um, two weeks after it was uh, published, and I uh, received a big box of books. Uh, they were the first people I sent copies to, and then um, several weeks after that, I went down to uh, Louisiana to put on dinners, both for um, uh, in in Baton Rouge uh, for people that I wrote about, and in Lake Charles. Mm-hmm. And we had a big dinner and celebration for all the people that I wrote about, or um, or who helped me, and. They uh, they mainly felt yeah they they felt um, I had heard what they said. They sent me some corrections on particulars, and in the, in the paperback you'll find a lot of details mm-hmm. change. But on the whole, uh, they they liked it. Well, good, good. That, that, that's good to hear. Then um, I guess to kind of wrap us up, uh, I'm wondering what you're reading right now. And what do you have going on after this? I am involved in uh, something called living room conversations, which get left and right together uh, in the living room to uh, seek common ground. It's 
uh, started by a mediation lawyer, someone uh, named uh, Joan Blades. And just last weekend, I had um, as house guests uh, a single mom and her two fantastic kids. And uh, they uh, they came up, stayed with us uh, for several days and participated in this living room conversation of getting left and right together on the issue of the environment and seeking crossover. And um, her name is Sharon Galicia, and uh, she and her kids are astonishing, I have to say, because uh, she is is uh, very Tea Party and very Trump, but her son, uh, who is 17 and just looking at colleges, um, is, is very loved Bernie Sanders. And the two talk and seek, you know, to explore things. They aren't alarmed by the difference between them, but kind of even relish it and, and uh, feel like ideas can be a playground to kind of uh, see what you really think. So... Uh, Sharon went back afterwards uh, to uh, Lake Charles, and she said, I'd like to do a living room conversation uh, in Lake Charles. And her son, Bailey, said, uh, yeah, and I'm going to write uh, an op-ed for my school newspaper, which he's the editor of, um, about the environment. Wow. So that's the kind of thing I'm involved in. I'd, I'd like to put the ideas of the book into action. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's really interesting. I, I love that, you know, you're seeing these problems and these things that are happening and now you're working to, you know, not just leave it at that, but work on it through action. Right. Well, right. Great. Well, I'd love others to join. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, let us know in New Orleans if you come down here. We'd appreciate it. All right. All right. Well, well Arlie, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for getting on the phone with us. Um, thank you. Well, thanks for the opportunity, David. And that's our show. Today we were speaking with Arlie Russell Hochschild, sociologist and author of Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. The Writer's Forum airs every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., Saturday at 8.30 a.m., and depending on Tulane baseball, Sundays at 1 p.m. Uh, you can catch all of our shows on iTunes as well as SoundCloud at www.soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.